0: My uh, my dad was always a creature of habit. Um, When he found something he loved, he stuck to it. Uh, So we went to the same farmhouse in North Wales uh, for around 10 or 11 summer holidays in a row. We, We used to book for the next year when we left. And it was our task in an early morning, my brother and I, to go and fetch the rolls from the local shop in the tiny hamlet. Nothing was actually ticketed in the shop. You had to pick something up and ask for the price. The shopkeeper and his wife would then have a conversation about exactly what the price was. And their conversation wasn't always short. There was often an anxious wait for us as boys to discover whether or not we really had enough money to afford both the rolls and maybe a few refreshers or something extra anyway. Why an anxious wait? Uh, because the conversation was conducted in Welsh. Only after their rapid conversation in Welsh would the shopkeeper and his wife condescend to speak to us in English. Even when my father came with us, the same thing happened. Rapid conversation in Welsh, and then the conclusion given to us in English, as my father often remarked on the way back, I wonder what the expletive deletive price is if you're Welsh. Why do I tell you that story? Well it felt like a potential key to help us understand this story in Act 6. Why? Because it shows how language and cultural differences can lead us to think the worst of one another. I have no way at all of knowing whether or not we were being uh, exploited by those Welsh shopkeepers. No way of knowing at all, I really don't. Yet the way they conducted their business created at least the impression that we were being unfairly treated because we couldn't speak Welsh. Similar things happening in Jerusalem. We have two different groups, Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Hebrew-speaking Jews are the locals, those who have grown up in the era, speaking the language and knowing the local customs. With the best will in the world, they probably saw themselves as the most authentic Jews. Not only are they from the Jewish homeland, not only do they speak the language of the Old Testament, they are like Manchester United fans actually from Manchester. In contrast, I really shouldn't say that I'm a, I'm a Liverpool fan from York, but in contrast the Greek speaking Jews had grown up, grown up in what's called the Diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews across the Greek and then Roman world. Growing up in an environment dominated by the Greek language, they probably adopted not just the language, but also many Greek customs. And now they've moved to live in Jerusalem. Why? Well, just before we left Bletchley, a couple called Mark and Helen left as well. They had come over as children of the Windrush. And throughout their lives, they had always intended to go home, back to Jamaica. Honestly, Helen told me, She really wasn't keen, she told me that privately. She did not want to be an ocean away from her daughters, but they had been building their house for years and finally it was ready, so they went home. I think Jerusalem and Israel were to Greek-speaking Jews a little bit like Jamaica was to my friends Mark and Helen, something which tugged on their hearts, somewhere to which they intended to retire. But even though they have retired to Jerusalem, they still continue to worship in Greek. It was their mother tongue, the language that came most readily to their lips. That's a question I've learned to ask over the years for people who are not English. You know, what, in what language do you pray? That's your heart tongue. In what language do you speak to your Father in heaven? So these Greek speaking Jews almost certainly didn't have local family. And they're probably, they're probably seen as really more Greek than Jewish by the Hebraic Jews, those Jews who'd been born in Jerusalem, who worshipped in Hebrew and spoke Aramaic day to day. Now although these groups are coexisting, they've got a number of language and cultural differences, and a perception has grown up among the Greek-speaking Jews that the other group is favouring its own people. Just as it appeared to us that our Welsh shopkeeper was charging us more just because we were English. Whether there was an intention to neglect the Greek-speaking widows or not, we can't tell. But I am sure that it would be so easy for them to feel that they were being deliberately overlooked and left out. And this leads literally to murmuring, to displeasure being grumbled around the church, which occasionally happens. And the grumbling is against, it's against the Hebraic Jews. It's not quite an accusation of racism but it's a belief that fair treatment isn't happening simply on the grounds of ethnicity and background. Whether by accident or design, the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected and are as a consequence seemingly going hungry. Now, in a way, the problem has been caused by success. It happens as verse one, the number of disciples was increasing, that the need has outgrown the infrastructure. The previous ways of working were not working anymore. So the infrastructure has to change. But if it's a problem caused by success, it's a problem, notice, that reverberates along existing fault lines. When stress comes within communities, it breaks out at their weakest points. It's there that tension gets expressed. The warm-hearted fellowship we've seen earlier in Acts, and which Paula read from Acts 2 about, is being lost, it's being lost through whispered conversations in corners, where people think and assert the worst of one another, usually along existing fault lines. Whether it's language or cultural differences, whether it's a history of past conflict, whether it's theological differences or controversy around the right way to worship, stress breaks out along existing fault lines. When we have had past reason to question someone, it's, we're much quicker to do it second time around. So how do the apostles deal with the crisis well first point they face the reality they face the reality they don't understate the problem or wish it away nor do the apostles go all politician and seek to minimize their responsibility for what's happening they don't blame others they face the reality of the situation and their responsibility within it verse 2 so the 12 gathered all the disciples together they gather the church and say Would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables? I'll come back to that translation because it's really misleading. Choose some people to do this, the apostles say. Verse three, we'll turn this responsibility over to them. Up until now, the apostles had seemingly been overseeing the distribution of bread to everyone. The church has grown so fast that it's outstripped their ability to do this effectively. But rather than thinking that this is their fault, rather than assuming that they've got to work harder and do more, rather than beating themselves up, they have been given the wisdom to distinguish the presenting problem from the root cause. Overseeing the distribution of food is not, or perhaps better, is no longer their call. The whole infrastructure has to change Not just their capacity. As I said, I don't like the the NRV translation of verse 2. It suggests that waiting on tables is somehow beneath the apostles. We mustn't neglect the word of God to wait on tables. God forbid. That's not the intention at all. They have been overseeing this distribution from the beginning. The apostles are saying something like, and the word is repeated, it isn't right for us to focus on the ministry of serving food and therefore neglect the ministry of the word of God. This isn't about one task being more worthy than the other, it's about one task being what they're calling and the other no longer theirs. Literally, verse two, it's not pleasing. So it's not, they're not saying it's not pleasing to us. I'm sure we've got a supply there, it isn't pleasing to God. It isn't pleasing to God for us to neglect what is our real call in the calling of prayer and study just to make sure there's a fair distribution of food. In other words, the presenting problem has been caused by the Apostles not having enough clarity about their call and trying to do everything. They're not doing anything as well as it could be done. And the consequence is serious tension and grumbling within the church. If not dealt with, grumbling could easily lead to dissension and disunity. So the problem is not directly about a fair distribution of food. The problem is about the capacity of the apostles to do what needs to be done and their ability to focus clearly on their specific calling from God. If they face the reality, the second, they deal with the root cause. If it's no longer their call to do this, and yet still it needs to be done, then God must be calling others to do it instead. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility to over to them. If you'd like here, we move from diagnosis to treatment. The root cause is that the church's growth has inundated the apostles to such an extent that they're running really hard just to try to stand still. Consequence is failure. Tension between groups of different ethnicities that's threatening to become serious conflict. It might be hidden conflict. It might be murmuring at the moment but it only needs to spark to become a bitter dispute. And this remember in a church utterly filled with the Spirit of God. The apostle's response is striking. The issue is a lack of trust between ethnic groups and a lack of trust that they, who are all Hebraic Jews, will lead in a fair way. So they don't appoint the people. They ask the people to identify those they trust Uh, Verse 3 could be translated, pick out seven, being witnessed to as full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So it is their known and tested character the apostles asked for and their attested openness to the Holy Spirit. People that the whole congregation will trust because their character, their discipleship, and their openness to the Holy Spirit are known and the apostles will appoint them in their own place. They're not defensive. They're not oversensitive to criticism, not protective of their position and influence, guilty as on all of those. They're happy to give the task away for the common good. The people, verse five, are, are pleased to be entrusted with this task and they return to the apostles with a list of seven names. The list is difficult to read, but it is also stunning. Seriously, it is stunning. Remember the issue is one of tension between different ethnic groups. We talked about how stress and conflict breaks through along existing fault lines, where there is an existing weakness, where there's enough difficult history and suspicion, that's where conflict breaks out and the devil has his way. Now I guess we would have thought of ensuring equal representation from all groups, wouldn't we? That would have seemed to us right and proper. But it seems they don't think in terms of negotiation. They think in terms of restoring trust. The Greek Jews had lost trust in the church leadership. The seven men proposed to the apostles are all, all Greek Jews. And one who wasn't even born as a Jew, but is a convert. All the names are Greek names. The issue was trust, not fair representation. So they chose seven who could guarantee a restoration of trust. And it's wise in another way. Having been part of the minority who felt unfairly treated, the Greek Jews appointed will go out of their way to ensure fair treatment for all. That shows enormous grace to the minority. And they're set aside for this task publicly at the gathering of the whole community they're prayed for. They're given this responsibility in verse six, publicly given it. All of it happens before the gathered community. It's important that it's seen and owned by all. Third point, dealing with conflict liberates the church. So often I fear in church we try to deal with the symptoms not the cause. So often we want to make people feel better rather than deal with conflict. So often we want people to at least be polite rather than actually get the issues out on the table. This passage shows us what can happen when we actually deal with the root cause of conflict. Verse seven, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Notice the church is now growing much more quickly. Verse one talks about the church increasing, though that word could be translated being multiplied. Verse seven uses a related word that means uh, multiplied exceedingly. So with verse 1 the growth seems incremental, now it's become extraordinarily rapid and it's, there's a massive breakthrough in people who are priests becoming, becoming uh, members of the church. And the cause of that quickening was dealing with conflict and structures. Verse 7 also tells us, when we dig into it, how that growth is unlocked. It isn't just about the apostles getting the structures right, it's also about the apostles getting their focus right. Verse 7 it's all one sentence in the Greek. I need you to hear that before I go on to make the point I want to make. It's all one sentence. That means the second sentence in our translation, are, the second sentence are subordinate clauses to the first part. That is, they're consequences of the first part. They are consequences of the word of God growing. The word translated spread in our translation actually means to grow or to increase. We get our word augment from that word. The Word of God grows, the Word of God increases, and the consequence is that many become disciples, including many from the priesthood. So the growing of the Word of God is not related to people becoming Christians. That's a consequence of the growing of the Word of God as the Apostles set aside their time to invest on the Word of God as they refocus their ministry and prayer on the Word of God the consequence is that the Word of God itself grows I think that means that their renewed focus leads to greater and greater understanding and inspiration I think they grew in the depth of their insight they grew in their passion with which they preached and that means I think that the power of God brought great conviction both to them and to their hearers and that's why suddenly many of the priesthood are convicted because the word of God has grown in the apostles grows in them and the consequence of that growth is the most extraordinary fruitfulness in the gospel so act 6 shows the apostles facing the reality dealing with the root cause And it shows us that dealing with conflict can liberate a church to grow. So what does this mean for us today? Well first I think it challenges us to ask how well do we deal with difference? How well do we deal with difference? Differences of culture and language led to the conflict that threatened to derail the first church. How hard is it, honestly, to navigate Highfield if you feel different here, different in terms of race or ethnicity? Having led a church in Edgware that was more than 50% black by the time we left, I can tell you it matters hugely when you come through the door to see someone who looks like you, to see someone who gets you, for you to feel welcome. And if there isn't someone who looks like you or sounds like you, then we, we who are here already have to go well out of our way to bridge the gap. I can remember um, a sister from that church called Isilda. But when she came over with the Windrush, people just never learned her name, so she called herself Irene. That was the only way she could fit in because nobody could ever be bothered to learn her name. What happened to George Floyd last year was a shocking reminder that we must not assume we know what it is like for someone else different from us. I've only been on one short term mission trip to Southern Sudan, in many ways it was too much for me, if I'm really honest. When we landed in Rumbek, the second city of Southern Sudan, in a tiny MAF plane, We got down onto the ground about 15 minutes before a tropical storm began. Um, Not very encouraging, there were two wrecked planes just outside the airport that had crashed during tropical storms. But it was so intense, it washed the road out. So we had to stay that night in Rumbek, And that meant we had to go and buy some provisions that we weren't expecting. And so I found myself in my first Southern Sudanese shop, not really knowing what on earth I was there for. I was just looking around. And in that moment, a white person, very obviously a white person among uh, hundreds of Africans, I was very nearly assaulted. Um, the Dinka are very tall. Um, if you look them up, they, the average height is well over six feet. And suddenly, right in front of me, somebody was shouting at me and, and being really, really aggressive, and the bishop who was with us as a local, actually physically intervened and stopped me being assaulted. That was one of those experiences of being othered, of being treated differently because you are different. Common ground is easy to find with people who are similar to us. We have to seek it. We have to listen for it with those who are different. And the more different they are from us, whether in race, language, faith experience, marital status, generation, sexual orientation, employment, accent, class, the more different they are from us, the further we need to be prepared to move to find that common ground, the more gracious and the more humble we need to be to find that common ground. How prepared are we to bridge the gap? How far will we move to welcome those who are different even very different from us. Because that's what Jesus expects of us. He crossed every boundary imaginable to bring us to a place of peace with the Father, a place of peace with one another. As Paul writes in Romans 15:7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Second, it reminds us to be watchful on our fault lines. Watchful on our fault lines. Difference of culture and language led to the conflict that threatened to derail the first church. We have got quite a number of fault lines uh, ourselves. Differences between generations, differences about worship, differences of emphasis within our faith. Given those fault lines, those differences, conflict is sometimes inevitable. The challenge is to learn to fight fair. The challenge is to face that conflict when it happens. The challenge is to deal with it honestly and graciously and then to forgive and to forget. It's nearly always on our fault lines that conflict breaks out. And it's nearly always on our fault lines that spiritual warfare is seen as the enemy provokes us to anger with one another. We need to be watchful on our fault lines. Watchful, prayerful, always ready to be loving and gracious as we deal with a conflict that arises whenever a church is lively. And third, it teaches us to uh, to serve out of calling. Serve out of calling, not obligation or habit. The apostles were so busy they had lost focus. They were diverting their energies away from their primary task or what needed to become their primary task as the church grew and needed to change. They were simply doing what needed to be done. I guess they simply felt it went with the territory where the leaders of this church said we must, must preside over the daily distribution of food. Only when failure came, only when conflict came were they forced to recognize the truth that they had lost a clear sense of their calling That they were serving out of duty, out of obligation, not serving out of the present call of God. Verse 2, it was not pleasing to God. Where might we be serving? Out of obligation or habit. The greatest fruitfulness comes from serving out of the call of God. The greatest boldness comes out of serving out of the call of God. Because when we know God's call, it becomes easier to obey than not. And then we obey with a sense of conviction that yes, God is in this. Where might we be serving out of obligation? Where might we need a renewed sense of God's call, a fresh yes, this is still the right thing. Or a fresh no, it's time to put this down. And where do we need to step out with greater boldness, trusting our sense of conviction that yes, God is in this. Amen.